Uh, you can open your Bibles to Acts 2. We've been in there for a couple weeks now. And we are in a, a season, I think a really important season, a series we're calling The Spirit and the Church. And specifically today, you can throw that next slide up, Sarah. We are talking about the Spirit and the community of the church, or form and fire. It's the next one that looks just like that one, form and fire. It's not really an important slide, it just says those two words. I just wanna make sure that you have the slide deck. She's catching up. Form and fire. So we've been in Acts 2 for a a little while, but I wanna just read back what we just sang. These lyrics from Revive Us Again. We praise thee, O God, for thy spirit of light, who has shown us our Savior and scattered our night. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. And then we got this prayer that keeps repeating itself. Revive us again, right? Revive us again. Why do we sing Revive Us Again? It's not a trick question. It's not a hard one. It's a simple one. We sing Revive Us Again, again, because he's done it before. That's why we sing that. That's why we, that's why we ask that. It's an appropriate song for the church to sing. It's appropriate because the Spirit of God is brooding over his church. In fact, the Spirit of God is brooding over this church. He, he comes where he is wanted. He's longing to enter into our lives and our relationships. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, um, we've had a lot of response within our little church community of people saying, I long for this. Like, I am praying that the power of the Spirit would be more, um, more obvious to me, would be more evident in my life. And so I say, I kind of make note of that with a little bit of caution, but also curiosity. Caution just because I think it's always appropriate to just stay in this position of longing and observing and never forcing. But I also want to make that note just with a little bit of curiosity. I want us to pay attention to what God might have for us in this season. If you're really praying, revive us again, and truly asking, a couple fears can come up, okay? And I have a slide for this, Sarah, did you find that? All right, great. Revive us again, two fears. One of the fears is that God won't answer our prayers, right? That's a fear. But the second fear is that he might, right? What do I mean by that, if you really think about it? Simply put, if he, if he were to do that, where, where would that lead? What would it mean for us? What would it mean for me personally? What would it cost me? But maybe specifically over the last few weeks as we're talking about asking the Holy Spirit to lead us and what it means to be dependent on the Spirit, um, how do I put this? You might have a fear of like, but what if things get a little crazy? What if things get a little bit disorderly? Um, Are we a kind of church that can steward the gifts of the spirit? The kind of church that can steward like the power? It's all too often that church communities begin with like good intentions, good askings, but then things kind of get a little messy. And so I have a I have a strange question, but an intentional one. Is there a container that can handle that kind of power? You can just leave that up there for a second. Is there a container for the power? I'll give you guys an illustration for what I mean and what we're gonna talk about today. As I was talking about this topic with one of the women in our body, she, she said, oh yeah, I, that reminds me, I, it's just like in the movie October Sky. And I couldn't remember that movie, so she had to remind me. October Sky, you can throw up this picture, a movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, a young Jake Gyllenhaal, and it is um, set in kind of post 
uh, or like in the middle of the space race. And after the Soviets put up Sputnik up into the air, Jake Gyllenhaal plays this young guy and he's like in high school named Homer Hickman and he's just fascinated with space and with rockets. And he decides, I wanna, I wanna build my own rocket. And so he starts doing research and he starts studying and learning a little bit about physics and ordering parts. And he's assembling this rocket because he wants to see it happen. He wants to see it fly. And on, on the, the big day of the first test, there's anticipation, puts his rocket up, ready to go. He lights it. And instead of shooting up, it just explodes. It, simply put, the container he built couldn't handle the power. With, with that kind of power, you need an, a, a container, you need a structure with integrity that's not going to blow up when the combustion happens, when the power is released. And so that's why I put that strange question up there. Is there a container that can handle the power? And now a lot of us, when talking about the power of the spirit through his church, have either had like personal experiences or maybe from a little bit of a distance, we have a similar to this October sky fear of will there be, will there be a way for the church to steward um, the Spirit's power when it's released. So there's a parallel. If we're going to talk about leaning into the power of God, we're going to need to have a container. We're going to need to have personal practices for our personal lives. We're going to need to have a church that has the integrity to steward and to shepherd and to lean into the gift. So to be really specific for me and really for the leadership of our church, um, over the past few weeks, we've been rolling out what we've held for a long time. Uh, we've held even long before I was one of the elders here, this dual commitment in, in the church. And that is one, that we're committed to fostering a church community that desires and experiences the gifts of the Spirit. But there's also this other commitment to fostering a church community with the integrity to steward and to shepherd through it. Now, last week, um, one of our elders, Ben Arnold, did a really, what I believe, uh, a really helpful teaching with humility and authority on what it means to lean into these miraculous gifts. It was really helpful, and uh, he at least once, probably multiple times, said, hey, I know I'm stepping on some landmines and if you need help with this, this would be a time when you were asking to please reach out. So a week later, as I'm gonna continue in this territory, I'm gonna add to it. If you start feeling some tension, I'm adding a step. First, go back and listen to Ben's teaching first and then reach out for some help to your missional community leader or to an elder. Um, because we wanna, this, this is just building on what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. So what we're gonna talk about today, I'm gonna use kind of two different paradigms, two different phrases. We're gonna talk about the need for leaning into what we could call fire and form. That's, that's a, a phrase that Mark Sayers from Australia uses, fire and form. Or if that count, sounds kind of strange, we, you can maybe use this phrase, power, and practices. And this is not something that I'm coming up with. This is just us. If you've had time after my five minutes of talking to open Acts 2, it's right in Acts 2. That the first church, the, the, um, this description that we have of the origin of the church talks about these two things. The first section that we've been in for a while, verses 1 through 41, talk about the, the power of God being released. But it does not end the chapter before it goes into the second part, this important part, which is the practices, the form, the, t the kind of community that, um, that the church was, was becoming. So we are going to read, starting in verse 42. Let me go ahead and read that verse. After it gives this uh, description of, of the power coming, 
uh, it ends with the verse that we had uh, last week that we ended on. It says about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is after the spirit came in power with this mighty wind. This is after there's fire on their heads, uh, power. They're speaking in tongues. We talked about that last week, power. This is after good old Peter, who usually puts his foot in his mouth, gets up and preaches a powerful, simple proclamation that Jesus um, the one that they crucified was in fact the son of God. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then the next verse says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The first part was about power. It's about fire. And suddenly it goes right into, and this is the form that the, t- the, the church took part in. This is the practices. And so as we enter into the text, I wanna throw up this slide from uh, a guy named John Tyson that kind of puts um, next to each other the two extremes that we do not have to choose from. Each of those lines kind of correlates that we want to be a church that's both em- emphasizes power and practices We don't have to just choose one column, power or fire. Here's some of what you could expect. You can expect encounter, passion, anointing, breakthrough, manifestations, urgency, crowd, movement, and gifts. But a church that's also emphasizing practices, shepherding, and form, you're going to see formation, discipline, faithfulness, process, skills, sustainability, commitment, health, and character. So as we read this, I sometimes come up with little pithy outlines. This time I just wanted to be raw and straight to the point. We're going to talk about three things. The practices of a spirit-filled church. The combustion. What happens when power and practices are in a body together? And then the extraordinary power of the spirit in ordinary life. Okay, we'll talk about those three things. Uh, Spirit, I pray that right now you give us a vision for the kind of people that you would have us be as we look at the Acts 2 church. I pray that we would have a vision for the kind of church that you would have us be. Thank you that you are here. I pray that you give me uh, clarity and conviction. I pray that you give all of us open hearts. I pray that you'd care for us in areas where you've been wounded. I pray that you'd recorrect our, uh, or maybe even expand our vision of who and what you're calling us to be if we've kind of settled into something over the years. And thank you that we get to do this in community. Amen. So Acts 2 is the story, like I said, of the birth of the church. It's a birth announcement, just like with the birth announcement when you're like, is it a boy? It's a girl. Here we have, it's a, it's a church. And just like after a baby is born, uh, if you've ever experienced that as a, as a father observing or a mother experiencing that, you have the doctors take the baby right after it's born and the doctors do what's uh, called an APGAR test where they just like really quickly look over like the signs of life. Is this, and the A-P-G-R-A-R stand for something, but it, there's all, it's, it's like uh, appearance, pulse, um, I can't remember all of them, but basically is this a healthy baby, right, in the first five minutes? And again, reading through Acts 2, we have this description of the church. And like I said, if you read just the first part, you kind of get this vision that this new little baby church is kind of like the baby from The Incredibles, little Jack-Jack baby. Do you you ever see that movie? It's actually an incredible Pixar movie. Here's a picture. Little Jack-Jack baby, because so far all we're seeing is this little, this, this young infant church on fire. And there's gibberish being spoken, there's tongues being spoken, and if it just stopped right there, that would be the signs that we have. But then right after that, it says no, it goes into verse 42, and, and you can throw up this slide uh, of the four things, and they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship of believers, breaking of bread, and prayer. 
So baby Jack-Jack grew up really quickly, got a rule of life, and began submitting himself uh, to these things. And so we're going to look at those things. Um, There's a few times in the book of Acts where there's like this pause, and the author, Luke, kind of steps back, and he gives us this summary statement. It's kind of, and they devoted themselves, and it looked like this, to carry that picture of like the, the... the baby um, being measured or like assessed. It's kind of like you have a little kid up on the ruler, up on on its doorframe where it's saying, oh, how much have we grown? How's this going? Acts does that often. This is the first one, but we're gonna see more of these little summary statements in chapter four and chapter five and little ones all throughout. And this first one, is, is really simple in that this first verse that we have, you can go back one and we'll get to that word devoted. Uh, this first verse that we have, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, it's like a summary statement of the summary paragraph. Everything that follows is kind of explaining more of these four things, okay? This is the when Luke was, let me give an APGAR test of like what's happening, he chose to put it into these four categories. These were the practices that were, um, that we could use to describe. So as, as we're looking at, I'm, I am finally going to read the rest of the verses. You can throw up that slide that has the correlation. Uh, the next one, the next one. As we're reading through it, just recognize how each of the verses, verse 43, corresponds to the apostles' teaching, verse 44 and 45 uh, respond, um, corresponds to fellowship, verse 46, breaking of bread, and 47 to prayers. Here we go. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. This passage begins, now you can put that slide, you want me to get to it, the devoted slide, with this word that's really significant for this entire paragraph. Right after we hear this description of the power of God coming into the church, there is this response, there is this result, and the result is that the church devoted themselves to certain practices, to ways of being the church. And that word devoted, it's a pretty good word, like it's a pretty powerful word even in English, if you think about it, like devoted. But uh, to kind of round out the context, you could totally, you might have different translations that say, gave themselves fully to, That's what that word devoted means. Or continued to dedicate themselves. Or even some translations would say that they persevered in these following things. So this wasn't like, oh, and this stuff happened. It was like, this is what this new baby church fully gave themselves to. Fully gave themselves to. And what are those four things? You can throw that up one more time. The apostles' teaching a fellowship of believers, breaking of bread, and a prayer. So apostles' teaching first. When they say that they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, this is talking about something they submitted to. It's not just that they decided, oh, we're going to hold on to these doctrines, we're going to try to be orthodox in this. It's saying that from the very beginning, from day one of the church, the church threw themselves into continuous study of what it means to, to be the people of God under the, under the apostles' teaching. Now, at the time, they didn't have a Bible because they were writing it but they were studying what Jesus had handed over to the apostles and they wanted to be students of it. They're desiring 
not just the power of God, but understanding what it means to, to be the church. And last week we spent a lot of time on this all too common but ridiculous division of churches choosing whether they're going to be a word church or a spirit church. And it was helpful enough and many people brought it up that I wanna come back to it. Last time we read this chart as like a division and kind of a schism. This time, now that we know, now that we've talked for a few weeks about wanting to be a word and spirit church, I wanna read through this chart again and saying, as a church, that is continuing in the heritage of Acts, Acts 2, Jesus' church. We are word and spirit church. What does that mean? I got three slides. I'm not gonna go through all of them, but three of these charts. It means that we are committed to, that we value form and predictability, because it's helpful, but we also are committed to spontaneity and freedom. And we're gonna allow for those things to be in tension together and to create a beautiful tension. That we do value and are committed to understanding and obedience, but we also want to expect intimacy and enjoyment. That on the one hand, as we hold the Bibles, our Bibles in our hand, we can say absolutely that God has spoken but we also expect him to continue speaking, that he is speaking. That when we sing like we just did, on the one hand, we can just sing the truths about God, like the Psalms often direct us to, but on the other hand, we recognize that we're engaging in something relational and that we are singing to God and can listen to him speak over us. The next slide. As a word and spirit church, we see God's presence one, as theological conviction, we know it's true. But second, we believe that it can be experienced, a tangible reality where we sense the felt presence of God. On the one hand, that it is okay and it is good to value knowledge and intellect as, as the word um, points us to Jesus. But at the same time, it is absolutely okay to value experience and to have a healthy view of emotions. With that, go right to the, that next uh, one right underneath it. It is good, this, I'm gonna maybe pause a little bit here. It is good for us to have a healthy fear of emotionalism, a healthy fear of emotionalism, but at the same time, to have a healthy fear of intellectualism, because both can be crippling for the church that we're going to value obedience to God, but we're also just gonna value raw love of God. Last slide. As a church that is both word and spirit-centered, we're not gonna fall into the ditches of, 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 of taking one of these as more important. We have a theological framework for suffering and we have a theological framework for healing. Both are important. We're going to base our unity, yes, on theological agreement, but also on shared experience as we experience the power of God in our lives. And finally, just to summarize, we can focus on principles and practices while at the same time not losing focus on the power. And I came back this in part just to remind ourselves, this is, the, this is not something you have to choose from but it is probably something that each of us have found a little bit, ourselves a little bit more comfortable in one of these columns, which will lead right into our second point about needing a, a fellowship. But this is, this is something to be challenged by. So maybe just ask yourself, as I'm responding to the Spirit's work in my life, do I take upon myself the first practice of Acts 2? And that's that I'm devoting myself to the teaching that has been handed down to us. Second, the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship of believers. This is probably one of the most famous Greek words that people know in the church. It's a word called koinonia. 
If I had a boat, I might name my boat. I'm just kidding. We have someone here who named their boat Koinonia. And uh, what does it mean? It means fellowship. It's, yes, it's everything, uh, including those good, fuzzy fellowship feelings. That's a lot of, a lot of uh, alliteration there. Um, it's, it's all of that. It's good community. It's koinonia, the fellowship of believers. But it also has another, at least one other aspect. It has this aspect of partnering together. In fact, uh, Justo Gonzalez, one of um, a Cuban theologian who I've really been enjoyed reading on, on this, he says this about koinonia. In the first century, koinonia did not refer only to a good feeling or fellowship among friends. It also meant corporation, common enterprise, company, similar to the way today we might say that Peter and John own a company. They are partners together. I thought that's really that's really beautiful and worth making note of. That's why we established membership in our church and we call, it, we call it family partnership, where we're recognizing that we need each other, that it is necessary that we devote ourselves to, to each other for the sake of community, but also for the sake of partnership, which goes, goes against the grain of the world, which is individualism. It goes like, you're gonna get splinters if you do this, by the way. It goes against individualism and it takes some learning. Submitting to koinonia as a church that is recognizing the filling of the spirit means a very different way we approach being led by the spirit. And maybe to put it simply, uh, it's the difference between saying, God has told me so and coming to somebody in, in your koinonia and saying, I sense the spirit leading me this way. Would you discern with me? Those are very different things. Very different things. God has told me so versus I sense the spirit leading me this way. Sam Storms, who Ben drew a lot from, uh, he's a pastor who's been leading this word and spirit church down in Oklahoma City for 25-ish years. Um, he talks a lot about having a safe church in which we can learn these things together. A safe koinonia. All too often people are trying to learn, trying to practice uh, the gifts of the spirit in unsafe environments that lead to shame, lead to fear and guilt. And that results in people either saying, I'm gone or I'm gonna fake it. And those are both really sad and really dangerous. But in a safe church, Sam Sam Storms talks about their experience of just creating a safe place for people to try and fail and learn again and correct and be humble and then experience the power of the Spirit. It's a safe church. And last week, we did a ton of teaching on this. We did a ton of teaching on why we believe uh, as a continuationist church that it is good that the Bible instructs us to long for the gifts of the Spirit to long for tongues, prophecy, and miracles. But specifically, we even landed on 1 Corinthians 14 that says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And over the last week, we've had a lot of people, like, I'm not joking, there's not, not, there's not a ton of us here, but out of the people here, quite a few people were saying, can we, can we pray together for these gifts? And specifically around prophecy. So I want to do a quick aside as we're talking about learning in koinonia, some of what's been helpful to me in the last like 10 years of leaning into this. Um, this is not going to be holistic. There's going to step, probably step on some landmines. You guys can send some emails. But here's some, here's some things. As you're practicing hearing from the Lord in a way that you take the, with the Bible open and speak something particular into someone's life. Start with number one. Like I already said, I have a sense versus God told me. This could be the end of this teaching. This right here is so helpful and also so hard and creates a lot of damage and chaos if you do it poorly. Just say, I have a sense and someone can come alongside and sense with you. Okay, number two, this is really gonna be like spark notes uh, very quick. 
Start with scripture and or a picture. This is something that is really easy, really helpful. As you're praying for somebody and a scripture comes to mind, you can pass that along. Yep, we might get it wrong. We might take stuff out of context. You might get stuff that doesn't apply, but you're, you're giving someone scripture connected with a picture, like my sister who gave me this picture of the October sky just this last week of like, this is a picture of what I think is like learning to operate in the power with, with safety, just a picture. Third one is as you are giving somebody a, a word, just be discerning and be slower around these three kinds of words. Anything that's directive, corrective, or predictive. And we've done training with our leaders over the years on this for like seven or eight years, at least, before my time. Um, what I'm not saying is that the spirit, the spirit can give us words that might be corrective, that might be directive, or predicted, like this is gonna happen. But these are the ones that you just need to be slower with and discerning. That you might, like if you are sensing something, you might wanna bring into submission to other people or to eldership because those are the ones that can get a little bit, a little bit scary for people. And so you just wanna be a little bit slower. But with that, we do wanna heed 1 Corinthians invitation, follow the way of love, eagerly desire gifts of the spirit. We're gonna move the second two more quickly because it's taking a little bit longer than I thought. Practice three. So they have practice one is the apostles' teaching. Practice two, koinonia. Practice three, the breaking of the bread. Another, another practice that they devoted themselves to. It's connected with verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, there's a little bit of debate about why they just talked about fellowship. Why are they talking about breaking of bread right after that? Most people land, I, I would land on, this is specifically talking about the practice of communion in part because it is like differentiating between fellowship and, and breaking of bread. It's also connected in this verse to attending the temple. Regardless of how nitpicky you want to get on like what's going on here, the general thing, the general principle is that the spirit-filled church, the third thing they devoted themselves to was showing up together, showing up in a rule of life. One is being a community, and that was that fellowship piece, but this one is showing up into the spaces that the community has committed itself to, whether it's uh, for them as Jews at the time, it was showing up in the temple daily and then coming into their homes for breaking of bread, whether that was a meal or communion, and it was almost certainly both. But for us, as a people who, who want to be a spirit-dependent church, uh, we have to be committed to the practice of showing up. Now, some of you are really good at this already, and the rest of us who are like 40 and under are really terrible at this. For some reason, millennials and Gen Z have, and I think it really is connected to the iPhone, have uh, given themselves permission to not show up. In fact, um, I think it is because we have this device in our phone that for the first time in history, you have the option to notify, I'm not gonna be there that never happened before. Before you're like, well, either I'm not gonna make it to the meeting and then they're gonna have to, they're gonna worry whether I'm okay or whatever, I gotta make this decision. But for the first time, we have these little like, this option in our pocket to decide. Often when we say, I'll be there, what we mean is I'll be there if nothing better comes up. Or I'll be there if I'm, if I'm feeling like it. So just over the last few years, I recognized how much, again, to use that going against the grain of like my culture, how much I'm so quick to do that. And so I instituted a little rule for Laurel and me, for our DNA. And that's that generally we do not cancel thing, things within 48 hours. And if we do, we're gonna, have, we're gonna try to do like a phone call or a serious like text just because it's so impulsive for me to just cancel. 
But I believe we are meant to be a koinonia who establishes a rule of life. We've talked a lot about that. If those are new phrases, we've talked a lot about that over the last few years. And then be, as, I, as I decide, what does it look like for me to be showing up into spaces that need to shape me? Then we follow through. We don't modify on, on the fly. So with, with um, it says, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Whether this is communion or not, well, the, the, it was often noted that in the first years of the early church, receiving communion, the Eucharist, was this joyous occasion. It was a bit of a party. Because we're, we're remembering not only that Jesus died, but, but that he was resurrected. So they're submitting themselves to this pattern of showing up and remembering that the power that they have. Number four, devoted devoted to prayer. This is the last practice, devoted to prayer. It's kind of the obvious one. As we're talking about being a a people, a person or church, that's leaning into the power of the spirit. Growing and what it means to be a prayerful people is really important. As I was reflecting on this myself, there's been seasons for me where I really leaned into the fact that there's a power available from the Spirit of God. Am I expecting that? Am I anticipating that? But then I would go into a different season and reflecting on it this week, it almost felt like it was like a hermit crab, like, like looking for a bigger shell. It was recognizing that I need to go into like new, I don't mean like levels or like some sort of gnostic, like getting better at something, but I just mean like sometimes I, I needed to go to a new place of learning what it means to, to pray differently or to be wholly discontent, have a holy discontent with my own life, my own patterns, my own prayer life. A couple of quotes on this from Tozer, I don't have slides, I don't think for this. But to desire revival, Tozer says, and at the same time to neglect personal prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. You can throw up the Dallas Willard quote. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right in the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. So as we talk about leaning into the power of the Spirit, we're joining in a rich tradition, starting in Acts 2, of churches and individuals, people of God, who desiring the power of the Spirit, lean into practices so that they might be a container that can steward whatever God has for them. So point two, and these will get rapidly shorter now, what happens when a person or a church embraces power and practices? Let's talk about the combustion of power and practices. Like I said, historically, you'll hear stories of churches or maybe even like movements, renewal stories, that kind of embraced one or the other. I already mentioned Mark Sayers who gives us his paradigm of form and fire. And there's different movements that kind of embrace, we're gonna be more like the form, more the, more the practices kind of church. We're gonna be more the, the, the church that leans into the power. And good things happen. A couple of stories from either one when you, when you just have one, God uses that. In a movement shaped around fire, release, power, if you guys wanna do some fun 
this sounds like a paradox or oxymoron, but it really is true. Like fun reading on church history. Just Google the Hebrides revival. It is just fun reading about what, what God can do in a little farming community on the island, on a little island community off of Scotland. What happened was that around late 1940s, these two grandmas, two grandmas get really unsettled in the best way possible. They're two sisters. One is 84, one is 82. The older one's blind. And they just get really unsettled to the point where they go to their local parish minister. This is a tiny community. And they say, we've been praying that our church would see young people embrace the way of Jesus again. And one of them had this vision of the church full of young people. And she just brought it and said, I have this vision. I think we should start to pray. And so they kind of divided up the town and they divided up the week and they only had a few people, but they just started to pray for this part of the town. This group played for this part. This group prayed for this part. And it was really these two grandmas and the minister at first. And they started praying. Now you can read pages and pages of the account of what followed, but one guy, another minister named, named Duncan Campbell, eventually wrote this. Of the hundreds, remember this is a tiny community, just a few thousand people, of the hundreds who found Jesus Christ during this time, 75% were saved before they came near to our meeting or they heard a sermon by myself or someone else. The power of God, the spirit of God was moving in operation and the fear of God gripped the souls of men. What, he, what he's saying was, he's saying, I don't need to explain this. Let me just tell you what happened. People like zombies on these islands would just start walking towards the meeting because they had a personal encounter with God. It wasn't this mass hysteria where they got into a meeting and everyone's like, Wah. it's like they would be in the farm with their sheep and feel conviction of sins, repent, and then walk to this barn because they want to tell someone and they find that hundreds of people had the same experience. So these two grandmas, they're, they're, with their butts burning, started praying. And it's just, to, if, with this slide right here, it's just kind of the, this fire, just this power side. And it lasted for about four years, transformed a community. Then you can pick any number of stories on the form side. Mark Sayers talks about, um, in his book, Disappearing Church, the movement of the Benedictine monks. You have St. Benedict in the fifth century who in this crazy time of, this is like medieval times, the world really is kind of going mad. It's, it used to be called the dark ages. St. Benedict establishes this really quiet order of people who establish that rule of life phrase kind of came from him, this simple pattern of quiet prayer and meditation. And they started this like, these monasteries that became this, these oases of peace and renewal in, in like cities gone really dark. And that's a form movement. But as you read about these, the ones that really are potent, the ones that impact centuries and entire countries are the ones that embrace form and fire, both. That choose not to pick one. And so you have the Moravian movement from where I grew up in close to Czechoslovakia of it's, it's people committed to prayer for over a hundred years. The power of God comes, it becomes this giant missionary movement. The Wesleyan tradition comes out of that. 
The Wesleyan is another form and fire movement where you have George Whitfield, who's this incredible preacher, but he turns to John Wesley and says, sometimes I feel like those who are hearing my preaching are just slipping through my fingers like sand, but you have created a structure where people meet together in these little triads and it really seems to be sticking. It was a movement of form and fire. And so as we're talking about what kind of church we want to be, Mark Sayers gives this image, you can throw up that bird, (laughs) of a bird needs two wings to fly. And the movements that truly last, the churches that, that are able to navigate this with elegance, humility, but ambition and desire are the ones that have these two wings of form and fire. And I've already alluded to it, but historically, if churches decide to amputate one wing and flap with the other, what happens? You can throw up that next slide with the arrows. Eventually, even if we start well, they kind of flutter down into one of these two extremes. If you, if you feel more comfortable with form and get a little bit safer over here, you eventually find yourself in a fairly rigid environment with a lot of fear and some of it legit, but some of it crippling now. On the other hand, if you just gravitate towards the fire and the power, but aren't able to put structures and shepherding structures in place and this real submission to koinonia, you get confusion and chaos. But you can choose both. Pause here, a little reflection again. Which is more comfortable for you? Which is scarier? Sarah, you can throw up that list I read at the very beginning. These are two very good lists. For those listening, I guess, I'll read on the power side, we have encounter, passion, anointing, breakthrough, manifestations, urgency, crowds, movement, and gifts. But on the practice side, we have formation, discipline, faithfulness, process, skills, sustainability, commitment, health, and character. The exercise is, where's your invitation? Where's my invitation? Which which side do I need to lead into? Power without practices. Practices without power. We don't need to choose one or the other. I want to conclude our time with this third point. This will be more of like a an invitation than like a whole other teaching. Okay. Our third point is a vision of a church with extraordinary power and ordinary life. Extraordinary power and ordinary life. As I've been impacted by people down the road, a few steps down the road, that are mature both in practices and in the power of the Spirit. You know what's an interesting observation? It's really hard to see where one begins and the other ends. They kind of blend in together. And they're really humble about it. They don't really even try to like figure it all out. They're constantly asking for the power of God, but leaning into personal practices that they know both steward and provide like an altar where God can like send that. And it made me think, I'm going to talk about Lord of the Rings, and I haven't for like six months, so I've been saving it. It made me, oh my goodness. It is the 20th anniversary of the return of the king, I was told this morning, so there we go. At the end of Lord of the Rings, or not throughout Lord of the Rings, you have this character Sam Gamgee, who's infatuated with the magic of the elves. It's 
That's what he calls it, like the magic of the elves. But as he actually gets to know the elves, he realizes that the elves don't even have a word for magic. They, they, don't, they don't have like a word that differentiates what a magic thing is and what a normal thing is. They just, they'll make a cloak and the hobbits are like, ooh, are these magic cloaks? And they're like, I don't know what you mean by magic cloaks. They are cloaks and we made them. And like in Harry Potter, you have this invisibility cloak that's magical. The elves just have a really well-made cloak that yes, does hide you when you put it on. And I love this, this picture of a kind of culture where, yes, absolutely, we're anticipating power of God that is hard to explain by people looking from the outside. But the extraordinary and the ordinary get really blended in together. There's a humility that's required. And this same Gamgee, you thought I was done with Lord of the Rings. I have one more thing. This same Gamgee is tasked with kind of replanting, reforesting, rebuilding the city that they came out of because it gets destroyed. And he's been given this little magic box from an elf of like, again, they don't call it magic, but this magic box of dirt. It's just like a little box of dirt. And he's supposed to replant all these trees in the town that has been absolutely destroyed. They don't go, they don't go too much into this in the movie. And he's trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with this box? And how does it work with the work that I want to do? And uh, Frodo, the main character, turns to Sam and says, I think this is what you do. Use all the wits and knowledge you have of your own, Sam. And then use the gift to help your work and better it. As we are leaning into being a church that embraces the power and the practices. It's both and. It's this vision of the kind of person that the apostle Paul was, where he's able to preach philosophy and engage with leading intellects. And then he walks into a meeting and is able to, to discern someone with faith. Or he writes Ephesians, which is not bad theology, and then he's able to raise the dead. That list from John Tyson, uh, for me, gives a vision of this is the kind of church, this is the kind of mature people that we want to be. And you can throw this last slide up because we didn't have time to go through all the passage thoroughly, but here are the results. This is the vision, awe came upon every soul. There's favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Every time there's a summary statement in the book of Acts, as it's explaining how they're leaning into the power, growing into practices, these little summary statements, the little Apgar test, it always ends with, and the Lord added to their number those who are being saved.